And I want to take a look at Psalm chapter 73. And I, I'm going to be transparent with you here on the front end. This is a psalm that has meant a great deal to me over the past couple months. It's one that, that God has planted me in as I've, as I've wrestled through some stuff in my faith. As I've tried to wrestle with the goodness of God in a very broken world. It's been a solace for me as I've sought to work out my salvation with fear and trembling just like you. And so what I'm trying to say is that I have needed to preach this psalm to myself multiple times over the past couple months. And throughout this series in the Psalms, the Spirit has just been pressing me to preach it here. Uh, we've been in a summer, uh, a summer in the Psalms, and it's supposed to be like 97 this week, so it's still technically summer. So we're going we're gonna to go for one more. But the Spirit has just been pressing it on me. And, and so I'm assuming, and this isn't a cheap ploy as a pastor, I'm just assuming that there's some people here who need this psalm as much as I have the past few months. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe this is purely for me, and the Lord needed me to preach it one more time so that I could hear it. And if that's the case, then just pray for me as your pastor as I continue to wrestle and work out my salvation with fear and trembling. So here we go, Psalm chapter 73. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Psalm chapter 73. It would help if I was in Psalm chapter 73 and not the psalm that Lance preached last week. All right, here it is, Psalm chapter 73, a psalm of Asaph. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped and my steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They are not in trouble like others. They are not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out of their fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock and they speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked, they are always at ease. And they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocent for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. And when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. And then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you have put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end swept away by terrors. Like one waking from a, a dream, Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet I am always with you and you hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. 
And I have made the Lord God my refuge so that I can tell about all you do. And this morning, church, I want us to consider this idea. I almost slipped. I almost slipped. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I ask that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, his name is Alex Honnold. Some of you might recognize that name. He's a 38-year-old professional rock climber. But for most of his life, he actually lived relatively unknown. It wasn't until 2017 that he became somewhat of a worldwide name because in 2017, the documentary film Free Solo was released. Anybody heard of it? No? Okay. Well, now you have. The film captures not only the most amazing climb ever attempted by a human being, but the two years of training that led up to it. And so in the documentary film, they capture Alex Honnold's free solo climb of a rock face in Yosemite known as El Capitan, or they call it El Cap for short. But what makes this climb so incredible is two things. First, it's the rock itself. So this is a rock face in Yosemite National Park that extends up over 3,000 feet from the base to the top. Think about that, 3,000 feet in elevation, with the majority of the rock being a nearly vertical ascent. It's one of the most difficult climbs in the world. But the second thing that made it so incredible was, as the name of the documentary tells you, Free Solo, Alex Honnold did the climb with no ropes and no safety equipment. So for just under four hours, Alex climbed from the base of the rock to its summit. Spoiler, he made it, okay? But what I found so interesting about the documentary is, is that when you actually listen to the people making the documentary, when you listen to his friends speak about the documentary, his family, no one wanted him to do this. And the reason that everyone gave in their own words was because they knew that one slip one stumble without anything to hold on to, or could we say without anything holding on to you, would more than likely prove fatal. Listen, I watched the documentary. I knew he made it. I watched the documentary, and at the end, I, I had to change my shirt. I was sweating. <laughs> I wasn't even there. I mean, I'm in my bed, chilling, good, and I'm just sweating because I'm like, please don't slip. Please don't slip. Please don't slip. They understood the consequences of slipping. We understand the consequences of slipping. What I want to propose to you this morning is that Asaph in Psalm 73 knows the same thing. Not in terms of rock climbing or extreme sports, but Asaph understands that when it comes to our faith, two things are true simultaneously. First, that slipping has dire consequences. But second, that even the most faithful can find themselves on the edge. So what I want to do this morning is I just want to walk through this psalm with you. Walk through Psalm 73. I don't, I don't necessarily have points for you this morning. I'm trusting the Holy Spirit's going to give you those. I just want to walk through it, highlight a few sections in this psalm, some truths that God has been pressing on my heart as I have sat in this psalm for the past few months. So the psalm begins like this. It says, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Now let's stop right there. That superscript is actually very important for us. 
So we, we got to pay attention to those things. I know, I know y'all theological scholars, you know all this. Let me just, let me just reiterate it for my own well-being, right? We know that the chapters and verses weren't added until later in the Bible for our convenience, right? But the, the superscripts and the subscripts are inspired by God. That phrase, a psalm of Asaph, God wants you to know who wrote this psalm. This is a psalm of Asaph, and, I, Asaph, and I've got to be honest with you, I find great comfort in those first four words, a psalm of Asaph. See, here's what I mean. Asaph is a, a significant figure in the Bible. He comes from, if you will, religious stock. He is a Levite, a descendant of those who were gatekeepers in the temple. He was appointed by King David himself to oversee all of the musical worship for Israel. And then later on, you know he's good, because then later on, David's son, King Solomon, invites Asaph to sing at the dedication of the temple. Twelve of the Psalms in our Bible are attributed to him. And what I'm trying to get you to see is that Asaph was a man of spiritual position for the people of God. He was a man of spiritual maturity. He, he was set aside to be used by God. So in other words, he's not a new convert. He, he's not someone who's unseasoned in faith. He knows the word of God. He has studied the past deliverance of God. He has experienced the hand of God. And yet it is this man who says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet almost slipped. Here's why this is a comfort to me. Because it reminds me that in this life, your position does not protect you from struggle. That your maturity in the faith is not a guarantee that your faith won't waver. I'd be willing to bet that every Christian in this room has asked some of the hard questions that Asaph asks in Psalm 73. And if you haven't, just live a little bit longer. Because there are moments in life, and it doesn't matter who you are, when what we see and feel and experience doesn't necessarily match the theology we know to be true. Are you with me? There are times when the truths we believe about God seem veiled in a world that does not know God. And as one pastor said, it can seem like there is an incongruity with God. It can appear like what he says doesn't actually match what we're experiencing. And we got to be honest this morning that that can just be hard. And it will be this perceived incongruity that we see in this text as Asaph wrestles with looking at a world, believing in the goodness of God and looking at a world and saying, but this isn't really good. But before we get there, let me offer this word of encouragement to you on the front end. Though no one is immune from struggling, it was Asaph's struggle that results in this psalm of praise. And the psalm itself does not hide the struggle. Now listen, like, I need you to feel that with me this morning. Like We can read this and say, man, what a great song of praise. Because it begins in verse 1 with, God is indeed good to Israel and the pure in heart. And then it ends in verse 28 with, but as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all that you do. But we can't miss that this, pain, that this praise was birthed out of real pain. We can't forget that, yes, there's praise at the beginning, there's praise at the end, but what about the middle? What about the wrestling and the struggle and the questions that show up in the middle? Because if we're going to be honest with one another, this morning that most of our life is lived in the middle. As we face hard circumstances, hard questions, as life just hurts sometimes, and we have to reckon with the goodness of God and a not-so-good experience. But what I want you to see 
is that it is out of a genuine struggle. As Asaph looks at the world and says, this isn't matching up with what I know to be true about God. It's this struggle that becomes the catalyst for praise. That, and this leads me to believe, oh church, this is good news, that God's just, he's not scared of our pain. That God is not turned away by our wrestling and that God can meet you in your struggle. God is wise enough to deal with the hard questions that you ask. God is confident enough in himself to handle your doubt. God is strong enough to carry you in your weakness. What I'm trying to say is that God is not ashamed of your struggle and your wrestling and you shouldn't be either. And I know I'm on good exegetical ground here. I know that struggle is part of the experience. Do you know how I know? Because do you remember Genesis chapter 32? Thank you, sister. Because if you said yes, I was just going to move on. Y'all got to talk to me, all right? Genesis 32, that's when uh, Jacob is preparing to meet his brother Esau again. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau didn't go well. Stolen birthright, all that. Well, he's got to meet his brother again. And Jacob's a little nervous. And so at night in Genesis 32, he sends his wives away. And, and as he's waiting for the morning to go meet Esau, Jacob ends up wrestling with a man. You remember? Come to find out it was God himself that he was wrestling with. But do you remember what happens after he wrestles with God? Genesis 32, verse 28, your name will no longer be Jacob. He said, it will be Israel. Why? Because you have struggled with God and have prevailed. Israel means to struggle. God names his people struggle and meets them in the midst of struggle. God identifies with his people in their pain. What I'm trying to tell you, what I'm trying to remember this morning is that God identifies with me in my struggle and we shouldn't be ashamed of our struggle and our wrestling because often it's the struggle that is evidence of a faith holding on. Listen, it's not, you shouldn't be scared when you question and when you doubt and when you wrestle. You should be scared when you stop. Because the doubt is you wrestling with God saying, I'm trying to hold on. The questions are saying, I'm trying to understand. The heartache, the pain, but you not abandoning your God is a faith that is holding on. It's dangerous when you stop. And Asaph is wrestling with God. We see it in the very first verse we already mentioned. Look at, look at it again with me. It says that God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. Like, where do we see the wrestle? Well, here it is. This is an interesting start to the psalm. I underline that word there because it's an important word. That word in the Hebrew that's translated in the CSB Bible as indeed, some of you might have ESV, I think it says surely right there. But it would be more commonly translated in the Hebrew as nevertheless. But what's interesting is that if you read the psalm in Hebrew, in the original language, that word isn't in the middle of the sentence. It's actually the very beginning of the sentence. He starts the whole psalm with nevertheless, God is good to Israel. Now, that might not hit you like it hits me, but go with me here for a second. I've written a lot in my life. I have. Some of y'all knows I'm in the middle of doctoral studies. I'm writing a lot. I got paperback from the proofreader last year. I thought I was a good writer until I had those 623 edits. No joke, 623 edits. But the note that they did not have was why in the world did you start a paper with nevertheless? It just doesn't make sense unless the psalm that we are reading is the overflow of an ongoing struggle in the life of Asaph. What I mean is it's almost as if we are picking up in the middle of an ongoing conversation in the head and the heart of Asaph. In other words, this isn't a struggle that came because Asaph was simply having a bad day. 
This isn't Asaph waking up on the wrong side of the bed. This is a soul in turmoil. Now listen, I know that some of you in this room, you got your theology so worked out that you don't have to ask God the hard questions. God fits nicely into your theological boxes. You have the answers to your question. Praise God. But for the rest of us, I can resonate with this. I mentioned a moment ago that those moments of incongruity, when what we know about God and his promise doesn't appear to, to be matching up with the experience of living in this world. And Asaph begins with a declaration of what he knows to be true in verse 1. It is a theological declaration that God is indeed good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I know this. Nevertheless, God is good to Israel. He's saying, I know it. The word of God tells me. Right? Like Asaph remembers. He remembers the creation account where God, where what God makes is good. He knows from the story of Joseph in Genesis 50 verse 2 that God can take what the enemy means for evil and turn it to good. He recounts that in Exodus 33 when Moses asked to see the glory of God, it was God's goodness that he offered up as a testimony of his glory. He is living in the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 26 which recounts the people of God enslaved in Egypt crying out to God and out of God's goodness God delivers them. He has sung the song of his King David in Psalm 25 that declares it is because the goodness of God that our sins are forgiven. And so theologically speaking, Asaph begins with the biblical truth that he knows in his head to be true. God is good. But here's where the problem comes in. The incongruence, if you will. What he knows to be true theologically is not what he feels experientially. Let me show you. You go to verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. Here it is. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's saying, I know that you have promised to do good to your people. I know it, God. But it seems like it's those who aren't your people who are flourishing. I mean, he's honest with God. He says what so many of us have thought, if we're honest. I mean, I mean you read through it in, in verses 4 through 9. He says, they have an easy time until they die. Their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Pride is their necklace, and, and violence covers their garments. He goes on in verses 10 through 12. He says, therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The literal translation of that is that they have drunk up the abundance of God. The wicked have drunk up all of the goodness of God. It's as if Asaph's saying, there's nothing left for me, God. And listen to me, this is real. Asaph is asking one of the harder questions. You see, people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I'll be honest, theologically, that question doesn't stump me. I've got my theology worked out on that. The harder question is what Asaph is asking, not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? That's a harder question. Why is it that the guy who cheats on his taxes doesn't get caught, but he gets the promotion? Why is it that the person who's never shared a thing in his life keeps getting more stuff? Why is it that that man who has been a cancer to everyone in his life, but, but I'm the one who's actually struggling with sickness? God, why do you keep letting these good things happen to bad people? But I want you to notice how low Asaph gets. Because in verses 13 and 14, I mean, again, this is just honesty. He says, did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? 
For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. So here's what Asaph is asking. Is it really worth it to follow you? He's saying, God, I'm pursuing righteousness. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. I'm avoiding the sins of this world. I'm tithing my 10%. I'm loving my neighbor. I'm sacrificing for the good of others. I'm pursuing righteousness. But it seems like the more I pursue, the harder life gets. Have you been there? Okay, some of y'all just aren't being honest with me this morning. Like, I'll just preach to my own self. Michael, you've said this. God, I've devoted my life to serving you and your church. I've spent thousands upon thousands of dollars to get this theological education to be as faithful to your people as possible. I've sacrificed time with my family to serve you. I've gone to bed spiritually, physically, emotionally exhausted trying to love your body just to wake up to text messages from people who are mad that I didn't do more. God, did I purify my heart for nothing? Did I wash my hands of innocence for nothing? For I am afflicted all day long and punished every morning. But I'll be honest, I feel Asaph's concern in verse 15. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed my people because I literally stared at my computer screen for nearly five hours trying to decide if I would say those last five lines about the questions that I have asked God. I have wrestled with the goodness of God and the apparent lack of its presence in certain areas of my life. Can I be honest? I'm wrestling with it right now. I told one of our pastors last week, I just want to win. I just want one thing, to not be a dogfight. But Psalm 73 declares to me that I'm in good company. And maybe you've been there too. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe you have said like, I just said that. (laughs) Asaph's in a spot where he is wrestling. Because he believes in the goodness of God, but things just don't seem good. So what do we do with this? I know you're like, Michael, man, you should have just preached John, because this is a little bit sad. Well, hold on, it gets better. Here it comes. So Asaph is in the place where he says, my feet almost slipped. I almost fell. I was at the point where I was wondering if it was even worth it to follow God. But then, Sunday morning came. Woo! Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Let me make it plain for you. That's why y'all need to come to church. I'm glad you said amen. Because I'll tell my story. You see, I started off at a young age thinking, I have to go to church. And then I started living a little bit. And I said, I should really go to church. But I've lived long enough now, I've experienced enough of the pain and the hardship of this world where now I declare I need to go to church because there's something about coming into this place to worship God. There's something about gathering with the people of God and singing praises to His name. There's something about sitting under the Word of God that can make sense of the incongruity we so often experience. Sometimes when I'm so mad that the world seems to have so much more than me, I need to be reminded if I could have anything... Let it be your eyes on me. Sometimes I just need to be reminded there's no need to worry in this present suffering because there'll be glory after this. You see, when we enter the sanctuary of God, when we come into the presence of God, God has a way of shifting our perspective. That's what Asaph says, until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. See, he's saying when I took my eyes off of God and placed them on the things 
of this world and the people around me, none of it made sense. When I looked out, it didn't work. But when I looked up at the God who is good, it all made sense. See, that's what he's saying. Verse 18, indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered, my innermost being was wounded. I was stupid and I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You see, part of Asaph's incongruity is that he was judging the goodness of God based on human standards. He was looking at the wealth of the world and saying, that's God's goodness. He was looking at the provision of the world and saying, that's God's goodness. He was looking at the health of the world and saying, that's God's goodness. He was looking at the ease of the world and saying, that's God's goodness. And that's how he began to define the goodness of God. But in the presence of God, his perspective begins to change. And he looks at them, he says, oh, no, no, that's not good because all that's coming to an end. The wealth of this world will one day be gone. I don't care how healthy you are right now. Your body's not going to last forever. Some of us started off real good looking. Some of us had some hair at the beginning of this. Some of us were a little tighter in some places that were not tight anymore. Your body will fail. And so Asaph can say, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my portion forever. And he says, you see, I've been looking at the world and trying to define God's goodness by that, but that's not where we see the goodness of God. So where does Asaph see it? Well, Asaph begins with this theological truth that God is good, but after spending some time in the presence of God, at the very end of this psalm, he's confident in where the goodness of God is. Verse 28, but as for me, here it is, God's presence is my good. I like the way I learned it growing up. The nearness of God is my good. He says, I've made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. Let me give it to you like this, try to explain it to you. What Asaph's coming to realize. I don't have a whole lot of memories about my childhood. I've talked to y'all some about that. I don't have a whole lot. Of, I know some people are like, man, it must have been really bad. No, I had a great, I had a great childhood. My parents are phenomenal. And I'm not just saying that because they're here. <laughs> I had a really amazing childhood. For some reason, I just... I don't have, Aliyah and I talk about, I don't have a lot of memories of my past. I'm just going to act like it's because I'm real spiritual, right? Like forgetting what lies behind, pressing on to what's ahead. It's either that or I should go see a doctor. But either way, I just don't have them. I mean, I listen to my wife tell stories of her childhood, and she can like, remember some of the most vivid details, not just about like one story, like all of them. And I'm like, that's just not me. But there's one moment, it's not the only one, but that is seared into my memory. See, we moved back to Louisville in the early 1990s. Um, I was a first grader at the time, and we moved in January. I think December, January, so right around there. So we moved in the middle of the school year. And I'm a first grader moving to a new city from, you know, near Chicago, down here to Louisville. 
what that meant was that I was going to start a new school, but I was going to start a new school in the middle of the year. And I remember, oh, I remember this feeling. I remember being scared to death as I walked into that school for the first time. I mean, petrified. But here's the memory I have. As I walked into that school for the first time, my parents walked with me. And as we approached that classroom, I remember something so vividly. I remember my mom reaching out and grabbing hold of my hand as we were about to go into the classroom for the first time. And in that moment, I knew everything was going to be okay. Now listen to me. It wasn't because my circumstances had changed. It wasn't because the fear was gone. It's because I knew that my mom was right there beside me. That is a lower, lesser, lighter example of a higher, heavier, heavier, and holier truth that Asaph is trying to tell you. That the goodness of God is not that everything in your life will be easy. The goodness of God is not that all the hard circumstances will change. The goodness of God is not that you will have everything you want in this world. The goodness of God is that when the bottom falls out, he's still there. That's the goodness of God. The goodness of God is that when the money is not there, when your life is marked by sickness and sorrow and it's marked by pain and suffering, the goodness of God is that in all those things, God is still near. That when you struggle, when you wrestle, when you question, when you doubt, the goodness of God is that God is still near. When you get overlooked, when you are underappreciated, when the world seems to pass you by, the goodness of God is that God is near. And that's what Asaph comes to realize. Because he says in verse 21, listen, I was embittered, I was hurting, I was angry, I was questioning, I didn't get it. And look at verse 23, nevertheless, yet I am always with you. Why? Because you hold my hand. Even in Asaph's lowest moment, God was still good. And it wasn't that Asaph was holding on to God. It's that God was holding on to him. And I'm trying to tell you, church, there is power in the hands of God. I don't want you to miss this. Asaph didn't avoid slipping because he managed to figure it out in the nick of time. Asaph didn't avoid slipping because his faith was so strong. Asaph didn't avoid slipping because he was holding on to God. The reason that Asaph is still standing is because God was holding on to him. And church, there ought to be at least two or three of us in this room who could say, the only reason that I'm still standing It's because when my last thread of faith snapped, God was still holding on to me. I had that realization just two weeks ago. One of the brothers in the church asked me, how are you doing? And I said, man, if I'm being honest, my faith is holding on by a thread. And I don't know why, but that statement stuck with me. I went home from church and I started thinking about it. And I was like, what do I mean? that, that, That thread snapped weeks ago. How am I still standing? And it's not because I've got a good enough grip on God. It's because he's got a strong enough grip on me. Church, the reason that I got up to preach this morning was to tell you that there is power in the hands of God. Oh yeah, I know it's true. I'm on good exegetical ground once again. Because when Jesus' hands touched the leper in Matthew 14, not only the sickness, but the soul got cleansed. When Jesus' hands touched the dead girl in Mark chapter 9, resurrection came about put two loaves and five fish in the hands of jesus and watch him feed the multitudes those didn't do it for you let me give you one more put nails in his hands and watch his salvation flows that's the gospel we believe that when we couldn't get to god he's so good that he came near to us 
that he lived the perfect life we should have lived, but we can't. And, and he was righteous in all of his ways. But he was tried as a criminal, convicted on false charges. They did it, church. They put nails in his hands. They put nails in his feet. They put a spear in his side, and he was crucified to pay the debt that you and I owe. They buried him in a tomb, but three days later, he was raised to life again. I'm trying to tell you, church, there is enough power in those hands not only to save you, there is enough strength in those hands to keep you from stumbling. You haven't made it this far because you are so mature. You haven't made it this far because you pulled yourself away from the edge. You haven't made it this far because of your own strength. And there ought to be at least two or three of us who can shout with our brother Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. Church, I'm done. I'm in my seat. But as for me, the goodness of God, the nearness of God is my good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that you are near. You are near to us in our pain and struggle. You are near in our sorrow, but you are near in our joy and our triumph. God, you have always been near. And I thank you, God, that when we are faithless, you are still faithful because you cannot deny yourself. God, I thank you that when I can't seem to hold on to you, God, you continue to hold on to me. We give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.